Mark chapter 12. Um, You can grab a Bible as we'll be looking through it, or the um, text will be on the screen behind us. I was in Portland um, this last week. I have some really good friends in Portland, and some of my family, my cousin lives there, so it's always delightful to go back and say hello. And uh, my friend, my one of my dearest friends, I think we talk every day on the phone. Um, you'd think, what do you have to talk about? There's all sorts of things to talk about. And one of them is her teenage daughter. We talk about her quite often. Um, and while I was visiting, <clears throat> I got to hang out with her teenage daughter. And she's fantastic. And we watch lots of house shows and things like that. Um, and... You know, she was preparing to go back to school. Like, you know, it's not just small humans that have to deal with this transition of going back to school. She's a 15-year-old. And so she was kind of getting herself prepared mentally and, you know, doing a bit of clothes shopping, getting ready for um, all that pressure and that it feels like to be a 15-year-old teenager. And um, that's a reality, And it's a reality that was very visual to me when I was with her and is um, audible to me when I chit-chat on the phone with my friend who has this teenage daughter. And um, there's this pressure of school and there's these outside pressures that are on her related to who she is as a human. And then there's this internal doubt that sometimes she feels about being a human in that space that is high school. And sometimes she forgets who she is in that space. And my friend um, tries to reflect back to her, like to remind her who she is. And so she comes home often and my friend feels like part of her purpose is to be able to reflect back to her, like this is who you are, remember who you are. So she comes home to be reminded who she is in the midst of all these external pressures and this internal doubt that she sometimes feels. And my friend is like, she doesn't always hear, she can't always hear me. But I know um, what my job is. And I would say, and I might be a little biased, her teenage daughter might differ from my opinion, but I would say that my friend does a really good job. She does a really good job of reflecting back to her teenage daughter that she's loved, that she's beloved. Even in those moments when she's at school or with those pressures or has that internal dissonance, my friend does a really good job of reflecting back who she really is, so she doesn't forget. And I think the reality is that we actually don't really grow out of that, if we're honest, right? We don't grow out of it. I think we'd like to think that we do, that we move past the teenage phase and that we don't grow out of that, but um, we still have outside pressure and internal doubt And sometimes that outside pressure comes from religion. Sometimes that outside pressure comes from culture, the places that we live and work and move, or the things that we see on TV, or the things we listen to on the radio. Does anyone listen to the radio anymore? Podcast? Yes, yes. Or it's circumstantial. There's these outside pressures that call into question our own sense of purpose and identity. And then there's internal doubt that we experience, and those things call us into forgetting who we are. And last week, Johnny was in chapter 11 of Mark's gospel, and Jesus, it's the moment of the triumphal entry. 
where Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the crowds begin to form around him and the vocabulary that comes out is the words from the psalm, Hosanna, which means God save us. And there's this um, definition that they're giving to who Jesus is, that he's the new king and something new is about to happen. And so the expectation may be that he goes um, to Herod, the Jewish king. Maybe he'll go to his place. Or that he'll go to Pilate, the Roman governor, in order to be able to shift the kinds of power structures that are at place. But Jesus goes to neither of those places. Instead, he shows up at the temple. And Johnny said he's basically showing up at his own home. Jesus goes home to the temple because his people have forgotten who they are. And so he has words and things that he wants to reflect back to them so that they might be reminded who they are. And so we pick it up in chapter 12. It's still this moment where Jesus has gone and into the temple and he is speaking to these people. And it says at the beginning of verse 12 or chapter 12 and verse 1, and he began to speak to them and the them that he's speaking to, we can reference back to chapter 11 and verse 27. Walking into the temple, he's talking to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So those are the people that Jesus is speaking to in this moment in chapter 12. And obviously there would be probably crowds of people around them, including his disciples. And so he begins to speak in chapter 12 in a parable that Alex just read to us. And he's talking about a man who planted a vineyard. He was very thoughtful and intentional about this vineyard that he planted. And then he leased it. He let tenants take care of it. And he he went off to another land. But, you know, seasons change. It's now the seasons for fruit. So he sends a servant to go out and get some of the fruit. Not all of the fruit, but some of the fruit. And when this servant arrives, the tenants beat him up and send him away empty-handed. And so the owner of the vineyard is like, oh, don't know how I feel about that. I thought I might get some of my fruity fruits. I'm going to send somebody else in their stead. Let's see what happens. So sure enough, he sends people and it gets more and more violent. Until they eventually beat and kill these servants that this tenant or that this landowner is sending to these tenants. And so finally, he sends his beloved son. Because maybe they will have respect for his son. But they don't. They have no respect for him or his son. And it turns violent again. They are too focused on their own interests. And I think if we give ourselves pause for a minute, it's not too much of a stretch for us to believe in the possibility of something like this happening. It's what we tend towards too, if we were to imagine the earth as a vineyard that we are to tend to and care for. Right? We have a hard time as humanity not turning to violence when our, un- in- when our own interests are moved in on. Like we see that globally. 
When there's a threat to a particular country or this or that, then the thing that humanity tends to turn to is violence. Just have to turn on the news and that is a reality. But if we take it out of kind of this global picture, we can also be the people that have a hostile word to the person close to us when we feel like they're not giving us what we want. So we might dismiss the violence that we see on TV, but I'd say we're pretty quick with our own hostile words. When we feel like we're not going to be taken care of. And so it's not that much of a stretch if we sit with it for a minute to realize that that's kind of where we go often. It's towards violence. And Jesus here in this parable is using intentional language. It's the language of a vineyard, and that language is found in the Old Testament in Hebrew poetry, particularly in Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, the prophet is lamenting the people's failure to be faithful to the love of God. He uses this imagery and paints it and then laments the people's forgetfulness. And so here, Jesus used similar kinds of language to a group of people who are doing things for their own selfish gain. They are constantly acting out of their own interests. These scribes and these elders and these chief priests. And Jesus knows that that activity is about to turn really violent. And it's about to turn on him. That violence is about to turn on him, and it's where we'll get to in the subsequent chapters. And for those of us who have been in the church for any length of time, we know where that violent narrative is going. And at the end of this parable, as he is speaking to these people in the temple, to his people, he says this, quoting Psalm 118, which is about the people going up to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, and he speaks in a metaphor, or the psalmist speaks in a metaphor of rejected stone. Verse 10, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus is standing in the temple looking at them, those who are about to reject him, those who, with like holding on to their own interests, determined that they think they know what they know, they're going to reject the cornerstone of this whole thing. They're going to reject this whole kingdom. They're going to reject what God is doing because they reject Jesus. And they know it, verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus is in his own home. And he is mirroring back that their self-interest is about to lead them to violence. And they, he knows it. And they know it. They reject Jesus. They reject the cornerstone. 
all that God is doing. And again, if we're honest with ourselves, we do that too. We reject Jesus and the way of Jesus because of our own interests. With what we think we know. And there's a cost. There's a cost when we reject him. And the cost is usually to the people around us. But it also costs us. It costs because we actually forget who we are. And being determined to hang on to our own ways, we actually lose ourselves. We lose our purpose. That purpose to be faithful to the love of God. And this comes out even more vividly and loudly um, in the next few conversations that Jesus has. He has three conversations. And it shows that these people that, uh, these people that he is around are consistently distracted. And so Jesus keeps pointing them back to their true purpose. They're distracted by this religious pressure that they feel, by this cultural reality of Rome. And so Jesus is there to point them back to their true purpose. And so these scribes or these Pharisees, they send a couple of people to him. Some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, and it begins with flattery, you know, best way to start a conversation. Just going to tell you how amazing you are and you don't care about the appearances of people and you're a really good teacher, Jesus, right? All this drippy bits and flowing out of their mouths. And then they ask him a question, whether or not to pay taxes, and specifically taxes to Rome, to Caesar. They already pay other taxes. They pay local taxes. They pay temple taxes. If they're from Galilee, they have to pay taxes to Herod. And so the question is not about tax policy, but the question is specific to the tax that Caesar represented, Rome and Roman rule. So the Pharisees and the Herodians are working together to trap Jesus. Because if he supports them paying taxes to Rome, he's going to alienate the entire crowd that surround him. But if he says not to pay taxes to Rome, they have something that they are able to report to Pilate. That Jesus is um, kind of usurping their authority and moving people towards a revolt against Rome. So the question, do we pay taxes to Caesar? But Jesus doesn't get into that power play with them. He says, bring me a coin. Get me a denarius, bring me a coin. And then he says, whose image is on there? And they know whose image is on there. Caesar. Then Jesus says to them, give him his. Give him his. And then by implication, those are scholars and the reality is 
in Genesis, they know whose image they bear. In Genesis, it tells us whose image human bears, humans bear. Yahweh's, God's image. And so he says to them, Remembers who, remember whose you are. Give your lives back to God. This coin, give to Caesar what Caesar's. It bears his image. You bear the image of God. Give to God's what is God's. Remember whose you are. And they've forgotten who they are. They've made their lives about other things like self-protection and vindication and being right. And Jesus is pointing them back to their true identity and purpose. You give your lives back to God. And then he gets into another conversation which feels a little random to us. It's a story about a woman and brothers and heirs. And this was a typical religious bait of the time. And different parties claimed to believe different things. Particularly this party of the Sadducees, they just didn't believe in an afterlife. And so they would stand in the temple and debate these kinds of things together. And so they come and they bring this notion to Jesus. And it's like, okay, whose side is he going to take? Where does this dude land on the debate? It's kind of the sentiment that's going on here. And the point these religious people are trying to make is that the idea of resurrection is incompatible with the laws in Deuteronomy. So again, they're calling him into this um, controversy, a different kind of controversy, not a political controversy this time, but a religious controversy. Let's trap him here. And Jesus reflects back to them that again, they are missing the point. That resurrection is not simply about continued existence, but it's about transformation into something new. And their imagination for who God is and what he can do is too small. And Jesus' sentiment, again, is your religious squabbles are reducing you. These religious squabbles reduce you to people that you are not. You are wrong. Over and over, they keep making their religion their purpose. And it's about power and prestige and exclusion and self-protection and getting it right. They keep on forgetting who they are. But, third conversation. Here comes another scribe, religious leader. Read with me. Mark chapter 12 will begin at verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is here. O Israel, my people that I love. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right. Teacher, you have truly said that he is the is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, much more than all our religious activities and duty and obligation that we do. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Devout Jews in Jesus' day prayed this prayer, what's called the Shema, every single day. Devout Jews still pray this prayer every single day. And while Jesus is moving in, coming in as king to do something new, it is rooted in something old. The kingdom that he brings will allow his spirit to move upon his people and so be able to renew hearts and lives, thus allowing what is always meant to be true to be true. That his people would love God and would love each other. And Jesus is creating a way for this to be real. And that was the purpose of his people, but it's a purpose that they'd forgotten. The purpose of loving God and the purpose of loving each other. And I think all too often that's maybe the purpose that we've forgotten too that we reduce this thing that we called being the people of Jesus to showing up at church on a Sunday or doing the right thing or having the right answers. We, like them, often reduce this to a set of do's and don'ts, to duty and obligation and responsibility. And Jesus says, you can reduce this thing. But it's not to that. If you want to reduce this thing, then it can actually be reduced to the faithful practice of love. Not the idea, not the feeling of love, but the faithful practice of love. If you want to reduce what this is about, that's where you would reduce it to. The faithful practice of love. Again, it's not an idea. It's not a feeling. It's a faithful practice. I've talked about this man once before. He's called Greg Boyle. Um, he's a man that works in LA and he started um, what's called Homeboy Industries. And it's a uh, industry that seeks to support people who want to move out of gangs. 
There's like 120,000 gang members in LA. And he has about 15,000 folks that decide they want out of that life, and so they come to Homeboy Industries. And I've talked about this man before because he, as far as I'm concerned, is one of the most epic humans that is living on the planet at the moment. So if you want to encounter an epic human, you should look up Greg Boyle. And he came actually to Westminster a couple of years ago and did um, the address for graduating students. Um, And he does these devotions. So every morning he has all these people that he employs or that Homeboy Industries employs, and they've all come out of gangs. And so before they go and do their work, they come to see um, Father Greg. And he does a devotion with them every morning before they go off and do their, they have a cafe, they have all kinds of businesses that they're working on. And so he does a devotion with them. And I like to listen in sometimes. Because, like I said, everyone needs to hear Father Greg. And so it was a Tuesday, and he's like, I'm here to give you some good vibes on a Tuesday. And like all these people that are in a circle around him just give a little chuckle. And he has this like gorgeous sparkle in his eye, does Father Greg. And um, he says, today I want to talk about what it means to be faithful. Being faithful. And so he talks about how he'd just been in Pelican Bay. And... Um, Some of you might be familiar with what Pelican Bay is. I wasn't. Pelican Bay is um, a prison. And it's a prison where a lot of inmates are kept. And these criminals, as he's speaking, he just refers to Pelican Bay. And everybody standing in front of him knows exactly what Pelican Bay is. And he says, yeah, criminals are kept there. And he's like, you know, and he kind of looks up, the worst of the worst. He's like, whatever that means. And then he says, because some of you have been there. Pelican Bay. And then he says, after he holds the mass there, he um, says there's this guy called Louis. They all want a picture with Father, Father Greg. And so there's this guy called Louis that just keeps photobombing all of the pictures. And Father Greg uses colorful language, which I will not use here. And he says he just keeps photobombing all them pictures. You know, here he is, Louis, in all the pictures. And you know, the whole people that are listening to him are like, now they're laughing, they're not just chuckling, because they can imagine Louis all tatted up and photobombing all these pictures. And he's like, that guy's in there all day, which in prison speech means he has a life sentence. He's not getting out. Louis. And so he says he's walking along with the chaplain to another yard, because he's about to give another mass, and he's talking about Louis. who's <laughs> like, Louis the character made him laugh. And he says, um, the chaplain just starts telling him a story about a pianist from Carnegie Hall. This pianist who's played in Carnegie Hall like sends an email to this chaplain. is like, hey, I'd like to come and play for the folks that you have that stay there. And so he comes and he plays. And he says, this man brought him and all the other inmates and guards to tears. And specifically Louis. And he said it was his music and what he said. And he said the beauty of both, his music and what he said to them, reminded them of what they had forgotten. And as Father Greg is saying this to these guys, he starts to get tears in his eyes. The beauty of what this man did and said reminded them of what they'd forgotten. 
that they're not trash. They're not the worst of the worst. They're human. Worthy of beauty and belonging like the rest of us. And then Father Greg looks out at all these dudes and ladies who are like with Homeboy Industries and he says with tears in his own mind, in his own eyes, he says, that is what faithful means. It's about being anchored in love, tethered to a sustaining God and not even one bit shaky. That is the faith that will save you. That is what Jesus means, says Father Greg, to this group of people that are listening. Faithful is about being anchored in love, tethered to a sustaining God, and not even one bit shaky. That is the faith that will save you. And I think that's what Jesus means here too. That we would anchor ourselves, tether ourselves to a sustaining God with our hearts and our souls and our mind and our strength and with all of it. With all of our heart and with all of our strength and with all of our mind that we would tether ourselves to that which is unshakable, God. A loving God, a sustaining God, so that we are not one bit shaky. As the pressures of religion and culture and circumstances come in, they then don't define who we are. Because we know that we're unshakably held in the love of God. And so we love others. It says to love others not instead of ourselves. It's not what it says. It says that we would be able to show others the same love that we know ourselves. And I think the only way to do that is to be anchored and tethered and unshakable, not forgetting who we are. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, are you anchored? Are you tethered? That is the kind of faithful that will save you. It's unshakable. And you'll be able to show others the same love that you know. It's the greatest commandment. That we would know love. And that we would give love. And that's what this whole thing can be reduced down to. And Jesus then declares, as he goes on in the book of Mark, who he is once more. 
And then his teaching continues. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 43. He says, and in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came. And she put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So there's this, this is no longer, he teaches and then there's this juxtaposition as he observes this widow who comes into the temple courts. And so he says, he's teaching, beware of these scribes, dude. They're enjoying all the privileges. These are men who put themselves above other people and they put themselves in places of honor and they're all pious about how spiritual they are and how prayerful and God-fearing they are. And he's like, beware of them. They're so busy getting about their beliefs and so busy trying to define right action and protect their own interests and obsessed with their own self-importance that they have lost themselves altogether. That kind of attitude is costly. They have lost themselves altogether. Beware. You're told to look to them. Don't look to them. And it's not just costing them. It's actually costing the people that they are there for, particularly the most vulnerable in the community. It says the widows, the houses are being devoured by the systems and structures that are in place that these people perpetuate. These scribes, they expect people to show deference to them because they are full of self-importance and they're powerful and they're privileged. And Jesus draws the disciples close to him and he says, you know who it would be better for you to show deference to? This one who has none of that. She doesn't have power or privilege. This widow, this woman, she hasn't forgotten. And he wants his disciples to see and celebrate what she's done. She knows about sacrifice, she knows about dependence, and she knows about devotion, and she gives everything that she has to a system that devours her. She gives everything she has to a system that devours her. And we should feel the tension in that. There's a grave tension in that. This system that should support her, she's giving everything she has, and that system is devouring her. 
But Jesus doesn't stand by. He sees. And he will give up all that he has and was. He sees and he will give up all that he has and was to fulfill the greatest commandment. To love God and to love the other. And he doesn't do it abstractly, he does it actively. He's about to be absorbed himself by that system that devours in order to be able to break in with a different reality, a reality that gives. Because in God's economy, love always wins out. It's not hate or self-importance or self-protection that never wins out in God's economy, ever. And I think that's what I love most about the way this chapter is penned. because it shows us the way that love works. We see two people in this text who are close to the kingdom of God, close to the way of love, close to Jesus, the scribe and the widow. Jesus is not soft in the way that he condemns, Injustice and systematic inequity and power struggle, he is not soft in the way that he condemns. But his love does not polarize. It can't. And so his love is not for a scribe or a widow. It's not for an authority figure or a marginalized person. But both. Both. He gets absorbed by a system in order to break in with a different reality. A reality that gives. Doesn't polarize, but gives. That reflects back consistently to anyone who is close. Remember who you are. Remembers who you are. Don't forget. It's not polarized. It's not for one or the other. This kingdom is for both. It's the way love works in the kingdom of Jesus. So I have a question for you as we finish here today. Some questions. Who in this passage are you? Have you forgotten who you are? The pressures, whether they be religious or cultural or circumstances, have they led you away from love? Have they led you away from love of God or have they led you away from love of others or even have they led you away from the belovedness that is yours in Christ? Have you forgotten who you are? 
Or are you here this morning with genuine questions for Jesus? Not to test him. But genuine questions. You're right to do that. This is a space to come and ask, how do we follow Jesus? What does this look like? How do we embody love? If you come in with questions, genuine questions, you are right to do so. This is the place to do that. Maybe you are like the widow. Part of systems that devour you. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. And we as his people should see you too. And if we don't, We've forgotten who we are. But if we've forgotten who we are, and we likely have, because that's what we do as humans, we forget who we are. If you're like the widow and you're part of a system that devours you, it's likely that we've forgotten who we are. He can't. And he won't. And he sees you. And this table as you come here today is a representation that love wins. Love always wins. Not hate. Or self-protection. Or self-importance. And so as you come here, you come here to remember, to have the reality of that reflected back to you in bread and wine so that you don't forget who you are. That you are tethered to the unshakable love of God. Anchored. And that's the faith that will save you. Whether you're full of self-importance or whether you've just forgotten who you are or whether you're part of systems that devour you, this table is set for you as a reflection that you might remember who you are. And in being rooted and anchored to that love, that love will speak out of you. And then we'll be about what this thing is reduced to. The people of God. Loving him and loving others. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word that is strong.
and powerful. Thank you that your love is not polarizing, but that you set this table for all of us. Whether we play a piano at Carnegie Hall or whether we find our home in Pelican Bay, the words that you speak over us are the same. That there is something in you and about you and who you are that is unshakable. And that as we tether ourselves to you, Lord Christ, we are grounded and founded and held in knowing our true name, knowing our own sense of belonging that gives us inside a space of that which is unshakable. And so I pray that out of your good grace, you would give us the capacity to believe that, to know it, and that because of that, our practice towards those around us would be the practice of love. So thank you for this table and what it represents. It's our home, our home in you, and a constant reminder of who we are and what our purpose is in this world. So we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.